2: hello and welcome to the napoleonic wars podcast and welcome to another installment of utter anarchy new name same old business um we have played a a game of let's poke fun at the soccer ball which has just been ongoing for the last i don't know how long i i watched the the, uh, this is unheard of i watched a football game um don't worry, folks. We are going to get to like the history stuff in a minute, but I'm I'm going to poke fun at the, the soccer ball foot spiel, whatever it is. Um, I watched the England versus US game because I had a bet on with one of my patrons. I gave him the I told him that if the USA beat England, I would give him a month's free patron support, uh, which made him very excited. And so I watched that game, and it is possibly the most boring ninety minutes I have ever spent in my entire life. <laughs> And I make no apologies for saying that. And then apparently there was some hype about the England-Wales game. And so I saw the last bit of the first half and it just reinforced my sense that the, 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 the limits of what happens um, is, is remarkable. And then Geraint came on just, just now and told me that actually England had managed to score three goals. And I, I think it's me. I think if I watch, then nothing happens so I'm quite content to just not watch because I don't need to watch nothing. Anyway, look, that's, that's completely irrelevant. Um, the reason that there's anarchy in the room is partly because my good friend Josh Proven is joining me for this one, and I have made reference to this in the past, and I make no apologies for doing it again, and I'm going to plaster this all over Twitter as we're recording this. He's, he's the frustration of the guy. I think if he was in the mood to throw things, he would be throwing things at my head right now, but he's not able to do so by medium of the Zoom call. Josh, as we've discussed in the past, has this sort of rather smoking picture of him uh, looking, dashing, and sort of peering sort of enigmatically at the camera whilst he's at the Royal Opera House um, from a few years ago. And uh, it's, it's quite the picture. And I, I was vindicated, because I talked about this once before when he was on, and then Tom came on, saw the picture, and had exactly the same reaction. So vindication, I was right all along. But we should probably do some history. I
3: mean, I, I, I don't really know exactly where the picture was taken, to be completely honest. It was some place. Well, that narrows it down. Thank you for that. It was then. a place, it, and it had good lighting. I threw, I threw a name out there. I'm now, I'm now not actually sure where it was taken, but it was taken. And, and it, was a, it was several years ago. Um, and you all love it, and I don't know what to do with this love
2: we are trying to persuade Josh to just kind of change the branding on adventures in history land so that he just kind of puts this front and center because we think it might help him to sell books and so on. Um, But he's resistant because he loves his history land branding, which
3: is entirely understandable. The whole idea about history land is, it's not about me.
2: (laughs) Which is, is a very (laughs) laudable concept um and that's why we love you so much so if you hadn't worked out that josh is in the room tonight he is in the room tonight and he's joining in a four-way discussion on the most significant battle of the war of 1812 yes we're doing more proper war of 1812 content and we're doing one of those big well i call it a big bust up but frankly you're all very harmonious and very nice to each other it all ends up being sort of very kind and ever so slightly disappointing because there's no drama not that i'm encouraging you to sort of knock 10 bells out of one another, because it's not that kind of show. But I always expect a bit more friction, and it never happens. Who knows? Perhaps tonight will be different. So Josh is in the house, as is Nick Kaiser. Welcome, Nick. How are you doing?
4: I'm doing fantastic. How are you?
2: Oh, very well. Thank you for caring. Um, folks, you will remember that a long time back now, I had Nick on as part of Naval Month, and we discussed the Naval War of 1812. I will actually post a link to that episode, I think, in this episode description, rather than put the whole thing up again. Although I probably will also just do a tweet about it for folks on social media so that you can gain access to that. Because it was a brilliant episode and absolutely fascinating. Mixed in the cracking book with Hellion that people, you need to go and buy. There'll probably be a Hellion sale going on um, right now. So now's a good time to go and ask Santa to make sure that it appears in your Christmas stocking. For those of you who are of a Santa ilk. We also have Tom Fournier. He runs History Symposium. Tom's been on before. Uh, he was talking about Waterloo, the 1970 film, when we did um, the, the film's kind of mash-up of this. Great to see you, Tom. How are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be back. And last but by no means least, we have Geraint Thatcher, who, if you're on Twitter, will know he does love a bit of War of 1812 and usually has a very pithy link to an article that you need to read in relation to the war of 1812 and I say that with a lot of love in my heart Geraint but it's incredible the way that you will find a way firstly to link things to the war of 1812 and then secondly you'll have some reading for us as well I've never known anybody been so consistent with that it's remarkable um how are you doing how are you finding war of 1812 months such as it has been so far
0: it's been pretty good I mean um Personally, I've had a few ups and downs. I had an epileptic fit a couple about a week or so ago, and I really did my back in when I had the fit, so I was I'm sorry still recovering a bit from that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's OK, um, but it's just recovering now. But but otherwise, in terms of the actual uh, speaking of the history on the War of 18 and 12 months, yeah, it's been really good. And, um, yeah, uh, I suppose I, I should say I'm a, a little bit of a cro- cro- contrarian on some of these things because... Um, most of the discussions on Twitter will be Waterloo, so I shall um, try and talk about something different from that. So, for example, if if you're on if you're on Twitter and you're discussing the siege of Burgos, and uh, you everyone will be going 1812, I'll be going ah, so which first or the second siege in 1811 do you mean? Just to be contrarian and just to uh, shake things up a little bit
2: there. You do love to stir the pot, but you do it in an affectionate way, which is the important thing to emphasize. You're not one of those people who's just on Twitter to just be a bit of a git to use a, a non-technical term. Um well, right, we've so... got a
0: professional name for those sorts of people now. We call them Elon Musk. So
2: it's <laughs>
5: I'll refrain. Zach needs to promote his podcast on Twitter.
2: (laughs) I'll refrain from commenting for precisely that reason. But Uh the the lack of argument against will perhaps speak for itself.
3: Some of Um, us have our own channels to take care of as well. Right.
2: (laughs) Um, And it is a useful tool, if nothing else. Twitter is an incredible tool that often plays host to incredible tools. But to tonight's (laughs) business, um, it's the same as usual. Our guests will have between five and 10 minutes to make a pitch for what they consider to be the most significant battle of the War of 1812. As ever, the criteria by which you want to measure that is left entirely open and it it is for you to make the case as my esteemed guests and knowledgeable experts on why you particularly interpret this battle as the most significant. If there's time at the end, we will do a quick round robin of honourable mentions as well. We'll leave it to that wonderful medium of enlightened and carefully considered discussion that is Twitter to have a final say on this in terms of electing a winner. I'm not going to point any fingers tonight. Um, and once people have made their pitches, we'll also ask some nice-ish questions and have a bit of a chat about each one. So who to go to first of all. I think first I'm gonna to go to Nick and you're stepping outside your your kind of area that you're known for. So I kind of thought, well, maybe Nick will go for a naval one, but no, you're not. Talk us through it.
4: Yeah, I know you're right. Uh, that was, I think where you would have expected, but no, as much as I love my singleship actions, I do think they're really important. They're definitely not the most significant. And for significance, I wanna go right back to what the situation was like in 1812 and what the situation is like today, right? So I am in Canada, I'm in Nova Scotia, um, part of the, the country of Canada. Canada today is a constitutional monarchy, has a British system of government. If you flip over coin in Canada, you will not find an American president, you will find the late majesty of the queen that is down to this conflict. So I'm gonna go right back to the first year of the war and I'm talking about the Battle of Queen- Queenston Heights. So if you go back to Upper Canada, what, was, uh, what is now Ontario, very recently established colony, the situation when the war breaks out is incredibly desperate. This is a colony that's sparsely populated. It's got just 80,000 uh, residents in it. Many of them uh, were loyalists, so Americans who fled from the American Revolution, say loyal to the crown, had to flee the country, but many were not. Three out of five of the um, the people in Upper Canada at the time had immigrated from the United States, but after the revolution, well after. And they didn't come because of politics, they came because of economics. They're promised cheap land, economic opportunity, so they had no British identity. And they certainly would not have considered themselves Canadian that terms at the time still only referred to the french-speaking residents of lower canada it's now quebec so few in britain and few in the united states expected that britain could hold canada or any of uh, the british north american territories in this conflict um, they couldn't they didn't know they could rely on the canadian militia they had very few uh, regular troops And the Americans knew this, and the Americans have been talking about how easy taking Canada would be, and they've been talking about it for for many years. Thomas Chesterton, the former president, described an invasion uh, as a mere matter of marching. Um, Even the current American president, or the then-American president, Madison, who was not a proponent of annexation, he recognized that once they had Canada, they probably wouldn't give it back, because there'd be no demand to because Britain could not effectively reinvade and retake Canada, even if they wanted to. So in early 1812, there are two armies that are are trying to do this, but striking at the two main frontiers, uh, one at the uh, Detroit Windsor frontier, one at the Niagara frontier. And the Detroit frontier is isolated very early on uh, by a combined force of British regulars, Canadian militia, and Shawnee warriors under joint command of Tecumseh, and Major General Isaac Brock. I believe you talked about that in the last episode, yeah. Um, Sunning victory, very little loss of life on the British side, and an American army is, is compelled to surrender. And that's a huge boon for, for the British because it isolates one of those two main American armies. But there's a the second one. Uh, second army that is po- poised along the Niagara frontier, and it is ready to invade. By October, It begins to move across the border. Winter is coming, so the, the window is short, but there's still a window. And the window allows the Americans to cross, to capture key positions on the border, possibly even threaten or capture York, the capital. And this would be a catastrophe for the British, because the British forces in the region, they're sparse. Many of their troops have been diverted to lower Canada, more populous, richer and more easily defended. Upper Canada is in incredible danger. If the Americans can even get a foothold on the border before winter sets in, they're poised to make significant gains in the following year. So um, the battle that will take place at Queenston Heights is incredibly important for that reason. Now, thankfully for the British, everything goes wrong for the Americans. First off, the uh, invading force comprising uh, three U.S. infantry regiments five regiments in New York state militia, proves to be poorly organized. The commanding general was appointed for politics, not for his experience in battle, and he makes a mess of the organization. He gathers some boats, he prepares a plan, and he begins to cross on the morning of the 13th of October. Um, And he invades at at a place along the border called Queenston, which is halfway between Niagara Falls and Buffalo on a very narrow stretch of land. It's only about 55 kilometers long. It was the weakest defended position for the British. The British had three companies of regulars, two from the 49th, one from the 41st, and the rest of our troops were militia. Now, despite that pretty weak force, they're able to hold out well. And the British do eventually prevail as more troops arrive. The American advance is halted. And it it does result in an American route at the very end. And what this means is when the the year ends, winter sets in, there is no American beachhead in Upper Canada. When 1813 begins, the campaign season begins, both sides are at exactly the same point that they began. The Americans have to reestablish forces, reorganize their logistics, and attempt further invasions. They cannot just march on to York. Now, this is important because, you know, few had expected that this could have happened. And it very nearly could have um, could have been a catastrophe for the British. But Britain's able to hold on. They're able to hold on to Canada. And it buys them time. More troops arrive in 1813. More troops are sent from Britain. And in 1814, a year later, uh, thousands of troops are sent from garrisons in Britain and from the Peninsular War uh, as it as it wraps up under Major General Ross, and that allows the British to really change the course of the war, begin actually striking American targets. So this victory wins the the British time. It also wins them some popular support amongst the Canadians. Many did not consider themselves British. At the time, uh, they were displaced Americans, but the, the, the The impact of a common enemy and the impact of this victory begins to foster a sense of Canadian nationalism. It's not very strong yet, but it's going to continue to grow. Um, The British find it easier to recruit Canadian militiamen as the war goes on. And in the years after the war, this battle in particular um, is part of the founding myth of Canada. Um, as Canada develops into the country, you know, it, it becomes the memory of this anti-American struggle becomes uh, the essential the, the tenant uh, of, of the country. You know, we frame our constitution intentionally, you know, as antithesis to the United States. We frame it with a British-style um, parliament, a British head of state, and we even dedicate it to a founding ethos of not life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, a very hedonistic uh, individualistic American approach, but we found ours on the ethos of peace, order, and good government, uh, intentionally rejecting bad sort of American those American ideals. And as Canada is being sold to the population, you know, through the eighteen hundreds, Canadian officials are always going back to Queenstown. They they invent the myth of a Canadian defensive homeland. Was it the, was it the case at the time? Not really, it was mostly a victory of British regulars and Native American warriors, but that myth was really powerful. So, Queenston both preserves Canada for the British, buys them time to bring more troops in, to properly defend the province, and to eventually prosecute the war of the United States. And it gives Canadian officials the start of a founding myth that eventually develops into what becomes Canada.
2: gosh this is how we do it um uh, talk about strong contenders um there's a temptation i suspect for some of my other guests think hmm do i need to go home already um even though they're already home because they're doing zoom calls but we'll ignore the failure of that appalling metaphor um yeah i mean you don't get much more significant than keeps a a nation in the game and becomes a a founding aspect, well, a fundamental aspect of a nation's founding um, kind of mythology. So it's it's a very strong contender. It always strikes me as odd, the way that the War of 1812 plays out, in that you've got the expectation, which is Britain will prevail at sea and it will fail on land. And the reality of the War of 1812 is that Britain kind of fails at sea, doesn't do particularly well at sea, we we could certainly say that one confidently, but does all right on land. Um, Yes, okay, you've got New Orleans before anybody starts shouting at me about New Orleans, but New Orleans sort of, uh, I signed, and perhaps we'll discuss this in a minute, but I kind of feel that New Orleans is almost the aberration of the, the War of 1812, that actually the land campaigns go
5: remarkably well so my question I, I, for you? I, I, no, I think you have to look at the progression of the U.S. Uh, you know army and uh, how they improved the, their doctrine. And and I think one of the big things with the War of eighteen twelve, you've seen a shift from the idea that they can prevail with state militias and didn't need regular soldiers. But by the end of the war, the, it had very much shifted to the, you know, they were busy building up, uh, you know, this infrastructure of, of regular regiments and and training a new cadre of officers, especially at, at the senior level. And, and the U.S. Army, it was entirely different by the end of the war from what you've seen early on. so
4: and That's an excellent point. Thinking about Queenston Heights, one of the reasons the Americans do so poorly is that they over-relied on the New York State militia. And For to start off, many state militiamen were reluctant to cross the river, especially once the British put up a pretty fierce resistance on the other side. And it was actually the desertion of many uh, militiamen on the heights of prison that led to the final defeat. It's
5: probably a little bit more than that. You you know, the US also in the Niagara area close to Buffalo had (laughs) a large gathering of regular soldiers, but the commanding officer refused to report to essentially a militia general. So that was Smythe up in the Buffalo area and then Van Rensselaer in in the Lewiston area. So uh, when they were making their plans to cross the river to attack, Smythe refused to take any part in that. And and so it was largely militia with with a a smattering of regulars that, that attacked Queenston. And then, uh, interesting enough, then in December, Smythe tried again, close to Fort Erie, a place called Frenchman's Creek, where he crossed at night in the icy waters. And, and it's funny, the first crossing, he stepped out in out of the boat and uh, with a, his heroic flourish and quickly sunk into a hole over his head and had to get fished out, out of the river. And, and so then they tried again the next day and, and were repulsed by militia and, and regulars that, that that were in that area. So,
0: And it should, uh, should also just a little, a little add on, but um, the, uh, the a general or a colonel at the time that was captured, Winfield Scott, who um, was captured at Queenstown Heights, um, Wellington would go on to, say, call him the greatest soldier of the age in, uh, for his campaign in, in Mexico, so uh, a few a decades later.
3: Although I, I would caution the total reliance on that because the only reliable source for that quote is Winfield Scott himself. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I think I'm the one who needs to go home.
2: <laughs> I, my I, I am oh, okay. the guy. I, I'm, I am I'm, the guy who's gone into that sinkhole. Yeah, right I,
3: like, I, would, I would like to say that it's it's believable though, because Wellington would respect a man who basically cuts his own supply lines to go and do something, because Wellington would think that was disastrous, a disastrous move. So,
5: so rabbit holes. By eighteen fourteen, Winfield Scott was back. He had been uh, exchanged and was active with the U.S. Army again. So he was part of that niagara campaign and at the outbreak of the u.s civil war he was the the senior military figure for for the north and so the anaconda strategy was was you know something that that he had concocted which ultimately prevailed so
0: i mean the anaconda plan if you think about it i mean what the british did naval wise sort of strangling and bankrupting america by the end of the war of 1812 i mean what the Anaconda Plan is essentially is very similar for the North doing that to the South. If you think about it, just using the naval might to control and just essentially just squeeze the economy, um, so that you know that essentially
5: bankrupts them. It just it is very similar from the ocean side, but also the Mississippi. Yes, so and then also uh, you know the I think eighteen twelve it was the the folly of, of the u.s plans right Uh, queenston was supposed to be one of three coordinated attacks and um you know maybe it's the difficulty of communication in the era maybe it's it's generals that refuse to cooperate with each other but you know detroit Queenston And a move on Montreal were all supposed to happen at the same time. So, you know, Detroit happened in August, Queenston happened in October. And then there was uh, effectively a large skirmish at a place called Lacalle Mills, uh, you know, across the border into Quebec or lower Canada,
4: where the December initiative, you know, failed. And, and-, and like... When you talk about the, the, the myth of, of Queens in the War of 1812, because it's always been a very prevalent you know, myth in Canada, um, people rarely talk about you know the realities of, of how these battles were won. Uh, Queensland Heights was largely down to American bungling and the whole of the campaigns through 1812 down to poor logistics and poor organization part of the Americans. But because it's such a good story, you know, it 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 fed the misregardless, regardless, and it and it led to um, a popular perception for a long time in Canada of the of a heroic stand of militiamen. Well, but and the heroic nature of Brock's death. Right. Mm-hmm. So
5: the, the yeah. leading leading from the front here, you have the lieutenant governor at, at the time, the, you know, trying to take back uh, the heights from the Americans that, that had gotten around, you know, the village of Queenston. So um, it's, you know, and then after the war, when they wanted to celebrate his heroism, they decided that that they needed a column that was going to be taller than Nelson's column in London, So you know, so it's maybe a topic for another day but uh, can anyone tell me how many times brock was buried i cannot four i believe he was initially well, buried in one of the bastions at fort george and then he was reinterred in the new monument when it was built the monument was bombed and badly damaged by a fenian so his remains were pulled out of there, buried again. And then when the new monument was ready, then he was reinterred yet again. So
2: I mean, that's that's a busy, busy kind of life and death, isn't it? Blimey. Um if if I may, I, I will just kind of circle back to where I was going to kind of try and go with my idiotic question, which is just about the surprise um element of this. How surprised are both sides at What ends up happening
4: here, Nick? Well, well, both are quite surprised. And because neither had, it hadn't occurred to either either side that, you know, Upper Canada, you know, if it could be held, it couldn't be held for long. Um, You know, the British had, I think, about 6,000 regulars in total in the whole British North America. Um, many of us are stationed in lower Canada, the most populous of the provinces and what the, the difference made up was by the militia and the British did not know if they could trust the militiamen one way or the other, um, because many had been born in the United States and for all they knew they were, you know, Americans at heart. Um, once Brock, beca- uh, captures Detroit and, um, I, I think some of the British officials begin to feel a lot more confident. But again, no one's expecting the Americans to be, again, this um, inept at actually, you know, planning and carrying out uh, their invasions because they do have a significant um, numerical advantage. It's hampered by, as, as uh, Tom said, the, the lack of coordination between regulars and militia, unreliability of some militia units, especially in New York, but, but certainly no one's expecting, you know, this level of, of victory on the British side, this early in the war. I will, uh, actually,
2: no, before I do throw it over to this, I just think this is a, a moment to, uh, to reference those stats that we were discussing, or you were, mm-hmm. raising. I'm not gonna claim, claim any credit for this. Um, the knowledge is yours, uh, it, which really kind of helped to set everything in context. So just enlighten listeners to that. Cause I think the, the numbers game is quite kind of useful
4: yeah. yeah. Yeah, um well first uh, I found this quote in a, a, a issue of the Acadian Reporter, a Halifax newspaper, uh, in 1813, uh, in response to a Canadian who had written in to the newspaper. Um so the quote goes, a six pounder is not an army, no more than 450 men except in our puny war. Um people who followed war of 1812 know that the size of armies are involved in most of the battles are, are puny, compared to what you see in Europe. And, and part of the reason for this, we'll I'll give you a demonstration, um, the casualties at the Battle of Borodino, fought in 1812, ranges between 80, 80 and 90,000 men, uh, both the Russians and the French. And the population of Upper Canada in 1812 was barely 80,000 people in total. Um, the following year, 1813, uh, well over 300,000 men fought at the Battle of Leipzig, uh, French, Germans, and, and Russians. The whole population of British North America was 300,000 men. So we're talking about a region of the world is just vastly you know, underpopulated compared to what you see in Europe. And you see that reflected in, in the size of like, armies and troops that get involved in this battle, these conflicts.
2: But also so much space as well, you know, sparsely populated. Mm-hmm. And yes, OK, the, the nation then isn't the nation today. But, you know, comparatively, you're you're looking at, at regions where you can have population, you, you can have a, a force of a thousand men. And it, it means nothing because you can have a population spread over vast, vast tracts yeah. of land. So, you know, the, the kind of the questions of controlling those regions are frankly uh, an episode waiting to to be recorded um we we should kind of keep the momentum going and let me throw it open to the floor for for questions rebuttals counter arguments um tom do you want to go first
5: no, I, I think I'd already been, been pitching in. Queensland Heights is a, a significant battle, um, especially in the opening year of the war, and and uh, uh, you know, it preserved Upper Canada gave them a, a chance to breathe and 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 to to get you know kind of reinforced. Um, I, I think. The big thing, the overall strategy, and and this goes back to the the Governor General of British North America, Prevost, you know, it's much the same as the Seven Years' War. And that was, if all else fails, uh, everything collapses back on Quebec and the fortifications there and and withhold uh, until the Royal Navy can come in and reinforce you, you know, and that was i think some of brock's frustration you know because he was told not to provoke the americans don't antagonize them uh you know be in defensive posture but at all costs you know preserve what troops you have and and if necessary retreat back to lower canada so it's uh i i I think queenston heights um yeah it just reinforces kind of the impetuous nature of, of brock it's one of his biographers, uh, a retired British general, Le- uh, Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley, you know, having a conversation with him, he said, uh, you know, it was kind of playing what if, what if Brock didn't die at Queenston Heights? And he said, well, it's his nature, He there's a good chance he would have died at the next one, because he always put himself in, in the front of things, so,
4: yeah. And you can really see too after Brock's death the the British campaigns of eighteen thirteen they are far more defensive um, you know the men in the frontier are taking fewer risks in the early phases of eighteen thirteen than than Brock did. Uh, so, so some of some of that's the leadership. You right? mm-hmm. had Chief
5: and then De Rottenberg and then eighteen fourteen when when Drummond arrives on the scene then he was much more uh, much more aggressive and and he had a different tone.
3: Mm-hmm. you also carry on, I see Zach's about trying to lead on here, carry on Zach.
2: I was literally about to invite you to speak, so you carry <laughs> okay. on
3: well, um, I'd echo what Tom's talking about there about the the various strategic approaches and things like that. people getting annoyed about the. Well the arguments about whether we should just sit and defend Canada, whether we should go in and um you know carve out a, a space that we can we can give to Tecumseh basically um and even Tecumseh himself, who was uh, able to gather unheard of amounts of warriors uh to to uh, effect operations uh, with the British, was annoyed by uh, what seemed to him like british passivity when they were um uh, i believe it was around operations around detroit and things like that um but no queenston heights is a solid is a solid pitch there nick um uh i respect it uh i'm gonna try and fight it i'm not sure if i will be able to but we'll we'll see we'll see if i can conquer canada
2: <laughs> oh nobody nobody wants to try and conquer canada <laughs> They're too nice. They're too nice. It just can't be done.
5: It's um, because we channel all our worst tendencies into our geese. <laughs> <laughs> Which
2: are known in the memes as cobra chickens, quite frankly, because they, mm-hmm. they're just horrendous, horrendously violent. Anyway, um moving on from geese. Um Geraint, anything you want to throw into this one?
0: Um, no, I've um I've no, I think every everyone else is said everything said everything worth saying to be honest it's um uh, the only thing i would say is i would give a shout out to john norton because i think if it wasn't for him i mean brock was killed very early on in at queenstown heights well, that
3: that kind of speaks to the militia angle as well isn't it one of the things that militia did not like was to hear war whoops coming at them and supposedly at Queenstown heights when they heard the and it wasn't the indians actually who were doing it was a canadian militia regiment i believe who gave up a war whoop or even regulars i think um they took to their heels
5: no it was attributed to the uh, the the warriors from the six nations you're right grant you know there is a a pause right there's the initial american crossing uh, they got some guys around to the heights you know brock tried to take the heights back got killed his aide-de-camp led the next charge he also got shot the british sort of pulled back to the periphery of the village but norton pinned the americans in place on, on top of the heights and that gave um, chief a chance to draw troops from fort george and from the garrison at chippewa and then assemble the army that that ultimately pushed the americans off the heights so
4: yeah. there's no meat feeding of itself um you know the frontier we're talking about 55 kilometers you have know, troops spread across it many at fort george just assembling troops took time. So anything that Brock did uh, that the ever you know, militia and regulars did, you know, uh, in the morning, early afternoon to Queens and Heights, you know, gave the British time to do that.
5: Well, yeah, and the British had intelligence. They knew the Americans were amassing troops along the Niagara River, that they were going to affect a crossing somewhere, but they didn't know where, you know? So mm-hmm. they had, they had garrisons at, um uh, you know, modern day Niagara on the lake where Fort George is. And then at the village of Queenston, uh, there were barracks and and a a small garrison there. Uh, And then just the other side of modern day Niagara Falls uh, in Chippewa, there was a a major garrison there and then farther down the river at Fort Erie. And so then the idea was that wherever the American crossing would be, that then you would draw troops from those other garrisons and, and try to concentrate them
2: this is a masterclass already. Um, I don't know where we are in terms of the the time count, but I'm gutted that we have to to move on, but move on. We must, um, Tom, I'm going to let you hog the mic for a bit. Talk us through your one
5: and and hog it. I will. I had to edit furiously what my, my topic to try to keep it down to a reasonable time. So, uh, I'm going to start out by saying I'm cheating because, and my response or retort is going to be because, uh, This is the response to one American campaign. So I'm going to talk about the autumn of 1813 and the battles of Chateau Gay and Chrysler's Farm. So uh, by that time of the year, in general, it hadn't been a good year for Upper Canada back in April. Uh, The American Lake Ontario fleet disembarked an American army on the outskirts, outskirts of York, the capital of Upper Canada. They scattered the British defenses, suffering an exploding powder magazine, and then the occupying Americans burned public buildings and looted many homes. In late May, the Americans are once again on board the fleet on Lake Ontario. They attacked and captured the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake and Fort George. This action forced the British to abandon all their Niagara River positions and retreat towards Burlington Heights, which is in modern-day Hamilton. On a note of positive news, news, the Americans could advance no further than Stony Creek because they were stopped by a daring British night attack in early June. In July, the Americans sailed to York and once again captured the largely undefended town. This time they burned the barracks buildings, looted some buildings, but on a positive note did return two crates of books that were stolen from the library back in April. Also in July, the large contingent of assembled Indigenous peoples in the area of Fort Malden were demanding action against the Americans. Uh, Josh, you were referring to this moments ago. This resulted in um, an expedition to Ohio, so you had Tecumseh's sham battle at Fort Meigs and after no success, the force moved on to Fort Stevenson where escalades were attempted without the proper preparation disaster ensued with the 41st regiment suffering heavy casualties. Moving into autumn, the Americans won a major naval battle on Lake Erie. This resulted in the British abandoning the western portion of Upper Canada and seeing the Americans recapturing Detroit and capturing Amherstburg and Sandwich and then pursuing and destroying the British right division at the Battle of Moravian Town, an action which also saw the death of Tecumseh. Riding this momentum, the Americans had begun to quietly strip forces away from Fort George, moving them to Sackets Harbor in the fall, where a major army was being gathered. They were going to once again try to capture Montreal and sever the vital supply route to Upper Canada. The 8,000 men at Sackets Harbor were under the command of Major General James Wilkinson. And they were to travel down the St. Lawrence River towards Montreal, where they were to converge with a force of 4,400 men under the command of Major General Wade Hampton, who were working their way up from the area of Lake Champlain in New York. There was just a slight problem with this plan, in that Hampton despised Wilkinson and refused to communicate with him. All communications between the two forces would have to pass through the U.S. War Department. The traditional route to Montreal was up the Richelieu River Valley, but this was defended by a series of British fortifications. Hampton instead opted to cross over to the Chateau-Gay River Valley. As his force approached the lower Canada border, 1,400 New York militia refused to cross the border as the terms of their service called for activity in the U.S. only. Commanding the defenders was Charles-Michel de Rembery de Salaberry, Charles was born in Quebec to a military family. All four brothers had commissions in the British Army. Unfortunately, the fates were not kind to the family, with Maurice Roche and François Louis dying while serving in India, and Edouard Alphonse, a member of the Royal Engineers, dying in the assault on the breaches at Badahof. Charles had spent much of his military career in the 60th Regiment. With a threat of hostilities between the United States and Great Britain, de Salaberry proposed establishing a specialized militia corps recruited from French Canadians called the Voltageurs Canadiens. Recruitment was successful, and by October 1813, the Voltigeurs numbered around 500 men. De Salaberry was receiving updates on the American advance and set about creating his primary defensive position blocking the American route by felling trees across it and building an abatee. This he manned with members of the Voltigeurs, the Canadian Fencibles, and the Sedentary Militia. Defenses were created in depth, with a series of entrenchments behind the main barricaded, manned with a thousand-plus militia. He also anticipated the Americans trying to use a ford to cross the river and to outflank his position. He sent men from the Sedentary Militia and the Select Embodied Militia to that side of the river to guard his flank. There were also a number of Indigenous warriors mixed in with de Salaberry's troops. On October 26, 1813, Hampton had divided his American force, now numbering some 3,000 men, with 1,000 men crossing the river to outflank the primary position, 1,000 men under his command for a head-on assault, and 1,000 men being held in reserve. The attacks lasted four hours without being able to drive off the Canajan. Hampton withdrew his troops. The next day, he received orders to move on to winter quarters, and this aspect of the American attack had ended. 3,000 Americans were turned back by 1,700 troops. Casualties were minimal for the British, with two killed and 16 wounded. On the American side, 23 killed, 33 wounded, and 16 were captured. While casualties may seem light, the impact of this action was huge, with a major threat to Montreal eliminated. In the meantime, on the 17th of October, Wilkinson's American flotilla left Sackett's Harbor, New York. Some 300 bateaux and small craft carried the American army down the St. Lawrence River. On November 4th, they were fired upon by a following group of brigs and gunboats commanded by William Mulcaster of the Royal Navy. Their passage would not be an easy one. On November 6, Wilkinson received word of the defeat of Hampton's army. He sent orders to Hampton to march his army towards the St. Lawrence River to meet his approaching army. Wilkinson's force managed to slip past the British post at Prescott and on November 8 landed 1,200 men on the Canadian side of the river to clear away the militia who had been skirmishing with the Americans. The British sent a shadowing infantry force in schooners and gunboats to follow the American army. Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Morrison of the 89th Regiment had command of 650 men. The troops were disembarked at Prescott as the schooners could go no farther, but Mulcaster would continue to follow with the gunboats. Picking up the garrison at Prescott, the British force now numbered 900 men. On November 9th, Wilkinson held a Council of War. The Advance Guard was reinforced to now number 2500 men. Becoming aware of the shadowing British army, Wilkinson landed the remainder of his troops to deal with this nuisance to his rear. November 10th, the British had reached the farm of the Chrysler family and had encamped there for the night. The next morning, Wilkinson received word that his advance guard had fought with local militias and drove them off, leaving the way clear through Cornwall near the border of Upper Canada and Lower Canada. But before proceeding through the treacherous Long Sioux Rapids, Wilkinson wanted to clear away the threat to his rear. 2,500 men, some reports had it as high as 4,000, moved towards the British encampment under the command of Brigadier General John Parker Boyd. The British had 20 or so Indigenous warriors, several companies of Voltageurs, some Canadian Fencibles, and approximately five companies from each of the 49th Regiment and the 2nd Battalion 89th Regiment. Boyd did not begin his assault until the afternoon. He split his force with his right clearing skirmishers from the wood and ravine to their front and then advancing along the edge of the field until they run into soldiers from the 2nd Battalion 89th who rose up out of concealment and gave withering fire. The Americans scrambled for cover behind tree stumps and in the woods and their attack lost all cohesion and they began to retreat. The American left, under Brigadier General Leonard Covington, struggled through the ravine and formed their line under heavy musket and cannon fire. Legend has Covington mistaking the 49th Regiment in their greatcoats for Canadian militia and saying, Come on, my lads, let's see how you will deal with these militiamen. Moments later, Covington was dead, and soon his second-in-command also fell. This wing lost momentum and also began to retreat. By this point, Boyd's six guns were finally deployed and brought into play. The 49th Regiment tried to capture the guns and were suffering badly. As they were trying to advance on the guns, the U.S. Dragoons charged the 49th's right flank, but the 49th wheeled backwards and their line blasted the Dragoons with devastating effect. However, the Dragoon charge held the 49th in position long enough to allow the American guns to be withdrawn, with the exception of one that had been bogged down in the mud. With evening approaching and stormy weather threatening, the battle was over. On the 12th of November, the American flotilla made it through the Long Sioux Rapids and reunited with their advance guard. They met a messenger from Hampton with word that Hampton was not coming, and they decided to abandon their attack on Montreal and move into winter quarters. The British had suffered 31 killed, 148 wounded, and 13 missing. For the Americans, they had 102 killed, 237 wounded, 120 captured, and an unknown number missing. Montreal and the vital supply link to Upper Canada of the St. Lawrence River was intact to British, vic- thanks to British victories at Chateau-Gay and Chrysler's Farm. What else was meaningful about these actions? With the preservation of the supply route, it was ensured that Upper Canada could be sustained for 1814, but there were also several other significant takeaways. The Battle of Châteauguay was the only large engagement of the war fought almost exclusively by Canadians and even more interesting, Canadians, that being French Canadians. For the Americans, it was apparent the use of aging Revolutionary War veterans that often served as generals of their armies was not working. This paved the way for a new generation of younger, progressive, and far more aggressive generals that would take the fight to the British in 1814.
2: I mean, that's a masterclass in and of itself. Thank you for that, Tom. Um, lots of approving nods around the room as you were going through that. Uh, so I, I don't think you're going to be pushed hard. My question isn't really about probing on significance. I'm just curious about conditions during this campaign, because you're talking in part of that about you know, various states in November. Now, November here in the UK, we might describe it as a bit chilly and rather damp. In Canada, I've been watching your social media profile. I know that you guys get snow at this time of year. So what kind of conditions are these guys going through? Because I think that gives you a renewed appreciation of, we might talk about them moving from place X to place Y, but they're doing so in in pretty pretty horrific circumstances. Well, okay, to a, a Western European, they seem like pretty horrific circumstances. Sure, they pale in comparison to what goes on in Russia, for example, But in a Canada, very different kind of set of weather circumstances. So just talk us through it.
5: Yeah. You know, it's funny as you read about a lot of accounts of the War of 1812 and campaigns, weather is a prevailing theme, you know, weeks of incessant rain, lots of mud. But it doesn't really come up as it relates to these. So for example, Chrysler's Farm, you would think the weather was Coolish, you know because you have the 89th regiment they're out there in their red coats but the 49th regiment elected to put on their their great coats you know so it's it's cooling um you know it's fall it's it is getting damper so i imagine that there would be mud around but but for those specific battles no weather wasn't a big factor
2: interesting i'm going to open up to the floor rather than hogging the mic myself because there's more expertise from others than there is from me nick do you want to take anything on this one
4: uh yeah well uh, a couple comments one just on on the weather um you know because i had there definitely oh there's a lot of commentary in you know accounts from british officials about the weather in in north america because it it was generally worse than in england and so if you're stuck in in the colonies, um, generally officials from Britain weren't happy to be stuck in the colonies. Brock, for example, did not want to be here. He wanted to be in Europe fighting the, the real war, not the puny war. Um, so Weber's just another thing to complain about. Um, it certainly would have been worse, but you know you, you typically don't get too much snow early in November or something. Not like in October. Now that, that said. Um, the infrastructure you get in you know, upper and lower Canada is just nothing like what you have in Europe. So I've read accounts of individuals like um, James Fitzgibbon, who was a prominent um, uh, officer of the of the British Army in, in the in the war, of him escorting uh, minor supply convoys virtually you know by snowshoe and you know sled because uh, there weren't roads and there wasn't in the infrastructure to get things from one town. On one side of st lawrence to another town you know further down the river you know and it could only be done over the snow with you know, dogs and and other animals and sleds and, and snowshoes um, i also i wanted to, to ask tom because i've uh, had not looked at the the lower canadian and the st lawrence campaigns very very much before um, and i did not know for example that uh Châtonnet was the only real battle, which was primarily fought by French Canadians. Um, I shouldn't have been surprised by that because French Canadians do not really factor into the typical narrative of this of this war very much at all. Um, it's always kind of centered on upper Canada and when what becomes the genesis of English Canadian you know, culture. Um, so that in itself is, is interesting. Um, so Tom, do you, do you, know, you know, for example, why were, were fewer French Canadian troops being raised? in militia forces were they not being sent outside of Montreal and Quebec? Or G- generally, militias served close to home.
5: You, you know, so then there the, there were extensive uh, development of, of militia regiments in Quebec, but then in general, upper and lower Canada, you had degrees of militia. So early in the war, uh, they were the guys that would gather once a year and the highlight was when they tapped a beer keg on the end of the wagon and a lot of them didn't even have proper muskets right and so then you know uh, in upper canada how they tried to address that then they would take the flank companies because they tended to be the younger more active guys and and then they would make a composite regiment of of flank companies because a lot of the good old boys uh, guys of my age and stature you you know probably weren't Good for effective campaigning, but then as the war went on, um, you know there was a, a paucity of regulars because the peninsula was you know, consuming so many troops. Then they tried to um, have a better standard of militia, and this is happening in Lower and Upper Canada. So that's the idea of the voltageurs, right? They were locally recruited. But they were paid and trained like regular soldiers, and and the Canadian Fencibles were like that. And then you had the uh, the Glengarry Light Infantry, which was another Fencibles regiment, the uh, incorporated militia of Upper Canada. So the this idea of select embodied militia, you know, they're uh, they were a higher order than rather than uh, the the sedentary. So uh, to answer your question. Nick, uh, they were no. They was quite well developed in Quebec, and then you would find that a regiment like the Canadian Fencibles had, had quite a number of, of French Canadian uh, serving in that. But but generally, militias stayed close to home. That they're, they're if if they weren't incorporated or professionally paid, then their preoccupation was generally their farms and and. And getting back to there you know for a siege of fort megs a lot of that broke down because the militia thought they were away far enough and and it was sensitive planting time in the spring and and they were anxious to get home so yeah
1: cool fact
0: Uh, well, it's just a quick question for Tom. Uh, you mentioned that the the two American commanders, Hampton and uh, Wilkinson, Wilkinson, didn't like each other. Wilkinson, yeah, and they didn't like each other. Um, what was the reason for that? What what did they fall out of from?
5: Uh, not sure. You know, it'd be worth it's worth delving into Wilkinson. He was a colorful character. He was he was. I think serving under the threat of being court-martialed for being a Spanish fly or spy. So down in the, you know, the Florida area or Florida panhandle. So he's uh, he had quite a a checkered past. And and even on this campaign, they said he was rarely seen. He was mostly, uh, you know, medicating himself with laudanum in, in his cabin in the ship. So.
0: Yeah, I've heard of him. He never won a battle, but never lost a court-martial.
5: But But once again, uh, it could be rivalries dating back to revolutionary days, right? So, Yeah,
2: not losing a court-martial isn't necessarily quite the achievement that it sounds, because if you just (laughs) bore them to death with hours upon hours of, Mm -hmm. of content, then in the end, I think you just kind of make the the board sometimes just turn around and go look anything to shut this guy up anyway let's not go (laughs) down a crime and punishment rabbit hole not tonight not on this (laughs) show uh i know a rarity josh looks baffled but you know sometimes stranger (laughs) things have happened josh buddy any questions comments on this one
3: uh again i'd like to echo very interesting to hear about the the french canadian side of things it is one of the things you don't hear about very often, the founding myth of Canada is not, uh, as Nick was saying earlier, is not a, is very much kind of an English-speaking Protestant kind of one. Um, you know, the, the narrative is that, oh, the British take Canada in 1759 um, uh, after the Battle of Quebec, and then everybody speaks English and um, then the Americans try and take it and we beat them off. So that was really interesting. Thank you for that. Um, My main question is about American strategy. Um, uh, My reading of the various attempts to get into Canada is one of that we don't really know what to do once we achieve initial objectives. Uh, Is that a big problem for the Americans?
5: No, I, I think it changes over the years, you, you know, like even uh, the the fleet or flotilla moving from Sackick's Harbor onto Montreal, the, there, there was considerable de- debate what that army was going to be used for. And there was a real fear that they were going to direct it against Kingston, which even though York was the capital kingston was kind of the military headquarters you know that's where the primary naval base was for the lake ontario fleet uh it was the closest major center to the supply routes out of quebec so uh i but i i think it's partly it's wilkinson's waffling i think he worried <laughs> that kingston would, would be too hard to take and and there would be right too many casualties and and montreal was a, an easier objective and if, uh, I, I think there was just a lot of regionalization sure. you know, and a lack of coordination like after the battle of the thames upper canada was wide open if harrison took his army and, and continued to press towards uh, burlington heights or or to york but instead uh, you know he wanted to rush back home and and capitalize mm-hmm. on the, the political you know, gain that, that he made with that victory. So, yeah,
3: fair enough. I mean, I was also curious, um, if you don't mind me following there very quickly. Um, so we, we know that peace negotiations will be happening in Ghent between the British and the Americans, uh, how closely are the two negotiating sides when that kicks off? Cause I believe it happens in early 1814. Um, how how much have has all of say like Queenston Heights the battles you just talked about informed what they're trying to do when it the end of the year comes?
5: Uh, yeah, I think it's more the latter part of eighteen fourteen, and mm-hmm. as they're negotiating, uh, I see it more as as a race to to grab, you know. So they are put pressure on the Americans. So then you had. Uh, You know, a lot of Wellington's veterans showing up in North America, quite a few ended up in lower Canada, and then, and then it was such a shame, the Plattsburgh campaign, you know, Prevost took personal command of that, and, and totally mismanaged it and, and then lost the confidence of, of Wellington's troops, you know, by a little bit of resistance and and not pushing home the attack and, and instead calling off retreating it. And, and then there was huge numbers of desertions. Uh, and then, you know, the pressure in the, the Chesapeake area and then the attack on new Orleans, all of that was, you know, to be bargaining points, you know, whether it was to preserve a, an indigenous homeland, whether it was to, you um, you know gain concessions from the Americans, but with the failure of all of those, and then, then, then the British didn't have much in their hands, other than the US was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy and, and had to settle this. And then the British were absolutely weary of war, whether it was their own campaigns or all the money they had spent funding these various coalitions against <laughs> Napoleon. So well, I think I think
0: also. Before they before the negotiations happened in in Ghent, I'm sure I could be wrong, but I'm sure um, they they would started off in Russia with Russia Alexander trying to be a mediator, and like he did British, try, but
3: they, they weren't they weren't yeah, really interested.
0: Yeah, and the British pulled it to to Ghent instead. And the problem is, is some of the negotiators they used, like they used Gambia, like is like a terrible a terrible admiral that ruined known known for ruining, ruining a victory for Thomas Cochrane, and then like you're using him as a negotiator just seems ridiculous really uh,
2: but isn't ad- that partly that you you don't want to use him as an admiral so yeah. you, you, we'll find another use for the guy yeah. uh, yeah, Gary, right. right. we're gonna stay with you for this one you're up next what's your one Okay. Well, my
0: uh, my original one was actually going to be uh, the Montreal campaign that Tom was talking about because uh, it seemed like, from the American perspective, the the closest they could have come to to winning. Um, I'm but because that was already taken, I'm going to go with the Plattsburgh campaign. Um, it's the 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 fallout of that. I mean, um, it was like the largest invasion of the United States. But it's it's funny because, Pre- A, Prevost didn't actually want to do the invasion. He was sort of forced, forced to do it because he felt that it would make unite the Americans against him. But it was the fallout from that invasion. I mean, after the there was the victory, the American victory on the lakes, and Prevost with the British Army retreated, um, Yeo, Ye- I probably said his name wrong. I do apologize, uh, Yeo, the, a naval commander, blamed Prevost for that defeat and had him, was going to have him, had him recalled and was having him court-martialed um, and he was, he died before the court-martial could happen um, and there was a lot of blame from the Wellington's generals that had served because they felt that they could still go on and have won the land battle um, but, and they probably could have done just from simple numbers if nothing else but um, I think probably Prevost was right, because with control of the lake you could just land an American force in the rear at any time and you're trapped, basically. So, but it was, I'd probably go, but the fallout from that that victory, um, or that defeat, I should say, for the British defeat, was essentially the British decided just to try and go back to the, the status quo. They abandoned, essentially abandoned the Indian, the Native Americans and their quest for a a free their own free free nation or free states and yeah and it essentially just decided the British that let's just we we didn't want this war in the first place let's just end it now and just and just finish finishing finish it off pretty quickly especially because things were heating up in Europe at the time as well I mean there was I mean, obviously Napoleon came back, but before Napoleon came back, there was even talk of another war between all the various powers happening then as well. So, yeah, I'd probably uh, I'm going to go go with uh, the Plattsburgh campaign.
2: I like that you've you set this within the, the European context, because we have sort of been teetering on the edge of mentioning some of the mm. developments that are going in, in Europe. But it is important to kind of throw that into the mix because uh, obviously it has a a fundamental impact. You know, yes, Britain doesn't want to have egg on its face from the War of 1812, but what's the bigger strategic problem? Well, it's Napoleon knocking on your doorstep, right? And and France is literally on the doorstep. So I, I like that you've brought this one into the fold. I'm not sure I have any specific questions in relation to this one.
0: I've not been as detailed as Tom, I should say, uh, for the battle, so I apologise
2: there. Uh, You've made your case, and that's absolutely fine. Um, So let me throw it open to the floor. Anybody got anything they want to uh, take up on this one? Josh, I'm going to come to you first.
3: Well, I think of all the people you could have come to first, you could have gone to (laughs) our Canadian friends who would have had a much more informed opinion of uh, the Plattsburgh campaign, but... um, the thing that we haven't touched on weirdly enough in this video is the uh, very much anyway is the the struggle for the control of the lakes um which was considered a, a vital of vital importance to both sides and leading into i believe the operations in 1814 um there was a considerable arms race to get as many big ships with as many guns as possible onto the lakes And whoever held that advantage, therefore held the, like Grant said, the opportunity to pretty much go wherever they wanted and land anywhere they wanted. And at first the British had that advantage and then it passed to the Americans, I believe. So I think it's very important to remember that although these land invasions are sort of, uh, you know, typically what you might think of, uh, certainly from the United States perspective of things, they see it much more as a, Um, you know, commodores and uh, scratch-built fleets uh, duking it out on uh, Lake—I believe it's Erie and Ontario—and
0: Champlain. Yeah, the plateau was on Champlain, and there was also, I'm sure, there was some actions on Lake Huron and around uh, uh, Mackinac because they wanted to recapture Fort Mackinac from the British and and failed, but miserably.
5: But there was, there was, uh. Oh god. I'm trying to think up a uh, modern day wasega beach. The anyways the the supply ship was hidden in a river up there the Americans found it and, and burned it. An interesting kind of a cutting out uh, operation on, on upper lake Huron uh you know the, they captured US ships the Tigris and the Scorpion but mm-hmm. yeah primarily Lake Erie. Uh, it was uh, fall of eighteen thirteen. A, a massive naval battle, the the Battle of Lake Erie, and Lake Ontario is where the arms race was. This constant escalation of of ships, you know. So and then it it constantly flip flopped. Who whoever had the latest biggest ship had control over the lakes, and the other the other fleet would shelter either in Kingston or Sackets Harbor. But at the end of the war. British they, had British the British had too. launched the, the St. Lawrence, which was a, a ship of the line over 100 guns, and the, and the Americans guns had. Guns. What's that?
0: Sorry, sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted, but I was just going to say, I think it actually carried more. I read that it carried more guns than uh, the victory at Trafalgar actually had more guns.
4: Yeah, it was 110. 110. What's that? Mm-hmm thought I was 120, but it could be it could be 110.
5: Yeah, you anyway, know, it, it was massive. And then and the Americans had two on the stocks at Saccox Harbor that that they never launched. So they were preserved there for years afterwards. You can see photographs of them. But
3: yeah.
5: And for context, Josh, Victory's 104,
3: 104 guns? Uh yeah, 104, 105, something like that. Yeah. Nick is also agreeing. So
2: the naval <laughs> experts in the room are concerned so At the that.
3: very least, it's got 10 more guns, and at there most go. it's got like 20.
2: <laughs> there we go. Uh, Nick, let me come to you. Yeah, well,
4: this, um, Plax- Plattsburgh is absolutely an important campaign in this conflict. It's one of the ones I considered. I've had as, as well as Baltimore fought around the same time. Um, these are both campaigns that were... Um, possible because of the veterans um, coming in from Europe. Uh, so many of them were from Wellington's Army in the Peninsula. Most probably were actually from the garrisons in, in Britain. I don't think quite a full majority were were from uh, Wellington's forces, but certainly many of the generals and then the commanders were. Um, Robert Ross being the, the most important. And what it allowed the British to do was for the first time to, to seriously strike at the United States. And, then they, and they have this multi-pronged approach. They invade you know, across the lakes uh, into upstate New York. Um, they land troops in the Chesapeake. They, they captured Washington after pretty, pretty easily you know, wiping away the, the local militia. They set the, the Capitol on fire, the, the presidential mansion. Um, but both of those campaigns are blunted. Uh, at Plattsburgh and at the Siege of Baltimore. In both cases, uh, the, the British forces um, are unable to, to, to actually break through American defenses and it, and it shows the British, um, you know, we have the resources and we have the manpower and the naval might to prosecute this war, but it's gonna cost an ungodly sum of money. And we've just spent 20 years locked in this expensive war with the French Do we want to do it all again? We probably can, if we put the the resources in, gain some concessions. We can gain, for example, um, carving out part of what is now Maine uh, to be incorporated into the British Empire. We can carve out um, a set Western territory um, governed by uh, the Indigenous peoples, essentially as a British puppet state, as a buffer between them and the Americans. But is it worth it? And in the end, the British decide it's just not worth it. This is a war the British did not want. Um, frankly, many Americans didn't want this war. And so as a defending power, you know, being able to at least get a status quo result is pretty good. And eventually that's what the British do.
2: There's a lot more that we could dig into this. I mean, the desertion thing is one that sort of Apologies. Yes, I know. Crime and punishment. No, do I ever talk about anything else? But it, it, it does interest me. But we'll, we won't go there. I promise. That uh, this be I mean, be a crime. I, mean on, Zach, right.
0: were, I was going to say in terms of desertion, I mean, there was like the, the British or Alexander Cochrane, the naval commander did the um, did essentially the Emancipation Proclamation uh, 50 years early and over 50,000 uh, ex US slaves escaped to the British for freedom. And I believe at, at the end of the war, um, like some Americans were demanding that they be handed back, and I believe the the British Admiral Coburn said, "Yeah, sure, if they want to go back, they can do." it. And amazingly, none of them did. But um, I believe
3: the I believe the British government paid around thirty million pounds compensation mm. to the U.S. government.
2: That's but quite a hefty sum of money. It um, was a lot of money.
3: Uh, And obviously this was standard British strategy uh, going back to the American revolution, which was to um, encourage the the depopulation of plantations and incite unrest by uh, offering freedom in return for service. And folks,
2: if you want more on exactly that topic, the last episode that went out was on the West India regiments in the war of 1812. And exactly that kind of concept and the way in which the British try and use ethnicity and the racial divides as a a stick effectively with which to beat the Americans so go and listen to Tim Lockley talking to me about that it came out on Wednesday if you're listening to this on the day of release. Last but by no means least tonight we are going to Josh. Josh are you going to do a usual what I call do a Josh and valiantly (laughs) plug an underdog that we've all neglected in the hope of just raising people's awareness of a forgotten aspect of a conflict rather than actually hoping to win?
3: That's a very good question. Um, And that very much depends on how much importance you might place this battle. Because I think this is actually more of a mainstream battle than what I would usually present. Uh, This is what is commonly is known as the Battle of Lundy's Lane though previously it had been known as uh, and more colourful terms such as the Battle of Niagara Falls, the Battle of the Falls. I think it was once called the Battle of the Cataract, but it's, uh, in Canada has always been called Lundy's Lane, which is the just the name of a very pretty roadway that leads towards Niagara Falls, in, uh, uh, which forms part of the, I think it's the northern part of a portage road that runs north to south down the riverside. Um, and yes, that's the name that we're going to call it today for simplicity. Although I much prefer the battle of Niagara falls, um, the, the reason why it's called that is because the setting for this battle is absolutely extraordinary in itself. It is fought with certainly within hearing distance of the walls. And there are participants who said that the noise of the battle itself and the falls was extraordinary. Um, it's 1814 it's at before. Battle of Plattsburg. And for that reason, you can decide for yourself whether the significance is nullified by Plattsburgh. I'm going to argue for its significance, though, because it does form a very important part of the 1814 campaign and sets up Plattsburgh, and it's what happens at Plattsburgh, essentially, which returns things to the status quo. Um, so in the early part of 1814 you get the United States Secretary of War submitting a plan for uh, a campaign in the Niagara region along the Niagara River. Uh, there are both, there are more ships being launched onto um, Lake Ontario and the idea is never properly formed but they know they want to do something um especially as British reinforcements are starting to come in from Europe now, The American army that takes the field in this campaign is commanded by a gentleman named Jacob Brown. Uh, He is not very well known, historically speaking, but he was a very effective commander. And as uh, Tom mentioned earlier, you also get a chap coming in for the British uh, by the name of Gordon Drummond. And these guys are both quite stubborn Officers when it comes to fighting, and that is going to play a big part in the Battle of Lundy's Lane. So the basic idea is to form is for an American attack to strike the uh, the British fort at Lake Erie, essentially, a surprise attack that goes across the river, sees that, and with any luck, cause some further damage. I say this is vague because really after taking Fort Erie, there was no, I I can't detect a concerted plan. Um, However, it would appear that Brown had ideas that he might be able to march straight up the Niagara River and get to Queenston. Uh, It should be noted that the space that we've been talking about for this entire episode is uh, from north to south, I believe something like 35 to, about 35 miles in a car. Um, north to south from Fort Erie to Mississauga and so it's 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 not a, actually a very large piece of land. It's very strategic, but it's not a very large piece of land, but it's as Tom pointed out, it's very well defended with British forts that can support each other if one is attacked. And that's the problem. And as we've seen up till now, the Americans have not had very good cohesion. They've not got a lot of um, steadiness in their troops, and their commanders have been woefully inadequate, realistically. And that all changes uh, in this campaign, or at least the United States Army legend would have us believe so, because um, they set up a camp of instruction near Buffalo, and that is commanded by a young officer by the name of Winfield Scott. And he, he doesn't revolutionize drill or anything like that. He just makes sure that his men do it. And he makes sure that they come up to a certain standard that he likes. And he was very hands-on. He he made sure that his brigade, this wasn't the entire army, his personal brigade, uh, was was at a, a very, very high level that he could get it to do whatever he wanted to in the field. There's a there's a nice little bit just before the campaign kicks off, uh, when they're being warned for action and uh <clears throat> Scott is making a tour of his camp and he uh, he came up to the surgeon whose name was William Horner, who remembered this visit. And he said that, um, you know, Horner apparently said to Scott, there was not there wasn't a lot of work to do. And Scott supposedly said, um, uh, you know, well, yeah, we're fixing on getting you some work soon. And he was he was absolutely right. Uh, The army which uh, again, by European standards, is, is not large. It's around, I think, 2,500 men, 3,000 men, something like that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like to hedge, uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's about 3,000 men. Uh, they uh, go across in uh, early July, and they take um, they take Fort Erie. They take Fort Erie in remarkably simple style. They show up in front of it uh, and its surroundings. Uh, after I, I think they fire a cannon at the Americans, but I believe that's it, after sending a runner off to say, help, the Americans are coming. And uh, on the 5th of July, you get the Battle of Chippewa. Chippewa is the famous testing of Scott's brigade uh, and indeed Brown's contingent, which is a mixture of uh, some very solid U.S. Uh, regulars commanded by young uh, energetic officers, the oldest of which is around 43, 48, something like that. And uh, they come up against uh, the British, and the British um, get bundled off the field, uh, famously because the commander, Real thinks that they're militia, according to Scott, again. Um, But the fact is, the Americans have got onto the... The British side of the Niagara and are now moving north. The idea from here on in is a little—it it loses its way, uh, and the Americans start to burn things and cause a lot of trouble. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of skirmishing between, uh, you know, Norton's Iroquois and Canadian militia attached, in, and um, things start to get confused, especially as. Uh Drummond retreat sort of retreats to consolidate and and uh and Brown feeling that he's lost the initiative does not press on to attack Queenston or Fort George. He pulls back from those positions, and the British are allowed to concentrate, and they have to th- th- think of a think of a plan. Um this is to move towards the americans and the two sides clash at a place called lundy's lane it's not meant to happen there uh there is no battle planned for that day particularly uh scott is always rearing for a fight and he's just sort of run, running around like a tiger into the area and he's looking for british to kill but he's not supposed to actually fight anybody brown doesn't think he's going to start a battle Uh, And indeed, Rial, who is the point man at the second with the British vanguard, doesn't want to fight either. In fact, he's kind of afraid of the Americans at the second. And when Scott emerges at Lundy's Lane from a small forest, after hearing that there's a small British contingent near Lundy's Lane, uh, this is the uh, 25th of July, uh, Rial decides to retreat. And Drummond rides up and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm retreating. The Americans are over there. The entire army is coming at us. And Drummond turns them around. It's very late in the day. It's around 7 p.m. And the British range uh, uh, their guns on top of a small hill uh, that runs across, uh, that is topped by the road. And they pound Scott to hell, basically. Uh, Scott doesn't want to retreat because he thinks it would look bad for the army, uh, and he. wants the army the American Army to come and support him so he can attack but that means he loses an awful lot of men by just standing there he can't he can't advance he can't retreat Norton and the Canadians and the Allied Nations come onto his flank and start shooting him up from the flanks um and amazingly though the U.S regulars stand there they take this punishment some counter-attacking happens the British lose control of the left flank. A lot of tactical things will happen. I don't want to get bogged down in this. The point is, even though it's really late in the day, this battle carries on into the dead of night. The Americans bring up enough force to take the hill and the guns to hold the guns for the majority of the night. Drummond launches several counterattacks to try and regain the heights at Lundy's Lane, uh, and all of them are beaten off. Uh, there are very dramatic scenes during this battle which form a big part of united states military legend you have you have things like um colonel miller of the 5th infantry being ordered to take the guns and sort of chewing a bit of tobacco he looks up at the heights and says i'll try sir so, which is now a motto of one of the united states army's infantry regiments i believe um and you have during the the firefights through the uh, the night. You get a sense that Drummond may not be as inspirational as he seems because when he asks, uh, what well, well, he thinks he is, but he asks one of the uh, one of his own regiments, "Will you not charge?" And they apparently took this as a que- open question and withdrew to reform. Um, but he, it, that is neither here nor there. Because this is a battle of encounter, everybody had to make things up as they went. Drummond was very much in the forefront of things, um, cheering his men on. And the, the fact of it is that the British cannot retake the hill. Um, everybody is stunned that both sides have just stood there and shot at each other from 30 meters for the majority of the night. Casualties are ridiculously large, given the fact that by this point you're dealing with um the Americans have around two thousand five hundred and the British have around three thousand um the- the casualties are around one thousand seven uh yeah one thousand seven hundred um of which two hundred and fifty eight men are killed and there's this heartbreaking scene afterwards when the back at the British field hospital, I believe. Which is overwhelmed, uh, and you have a wife come in to see to her husband, and she she's holding her husband, her husband who's very gravely wounded, and she she says aloud, and I'll, I'll quote this: "Oh, that the king and president were both here this moment to see the misery their quarrels lead to. They surely would not go to war without cause; that they could give us a reason to God at least." for thus destroying the creatures that he has made in his own image. And very much, I feel that this is the story of the, uh, the war of 1812 um, a war that by this point doesn't even, I believe, have the meaning that it began with uh, because Madison uh, no longer had an objection to British pressing sailors because there was no longer a war for British to press sailors about. And In terms of Canada, I think it's significant because that's a human level significance. I think we should all remember this was the costliest battle in Canada. Um, uh, On a political level, this battle saw the Americans withdraw back towards Fort Erie and eventually they would blow up Fort Erie and uh, go back to their own side rather than leave it back to the hands of the British. Uh, leaving things again a sort of a status quo, this battle did not deliberately save Canada, but again, it is a battle which saw the Americans withdraw from the positions they've taken, rather than trying to hold on to anything for treaty gains. It's a very significant battle, I think, in military terms for the United States. I think it's a, a significant battle in the mythology of Canada. And it's a very significant battle just because it actually, in a strange way, despite its smallness on, on like the grand scheme, scheme of things, you get a lot of human drama in it that tells you about the horror of war.
2: Josh, as ever, an interesting one. And you're getting approving nods around the room. Um, I don't know about this one. I kind of feel that some of the others, apologies. And normally I'm very nice to you. Well, I, no, that's a lie. Normally I'm not very <laughs> nice to you. Um, but I... I think some of the others probably feel just a bit more impactful for me. This is, as you said, you said to yourself, you know, this is kind of a a status quo restore and that's important. Don't get me wrong. That is significant. It's in that
3: the entire war ends up that way. hmm. This allows that to remain this way in very much, I think a, a real sense. If the Americans had won decisively, then... They would have had their pick of where to go next and what to take next it was the americans battle to lose essentially um, and they chose to withdraw from it it was a tactical american victory probably a strategic british victory and I mean, how can you not like this? Like, like to read about this battle. Though? Look at this quote here: "Nothing could resist the obstinate desperation of the Yankees. Every charge with the bayonet proved how idle and how vain the boasting of the British infantry is when opposed to full-blooded eaters of the pumpkin." So said Captain John W. Weeks of the 11th Infantry. I mean, good on the pumpkin eaters, as Andrew Bamford would say.
4: <laughs> Amen to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think I it's a
2: fascinating that. one.
4: Mm-hmm. If may, be um, the characteristic Canadian come to uh, Josh's defense in spite of myself. Um, every battle in which the Americans are repulsed or driven out of a part of Canada is, I think, all strategically in, in the moment equally significant because it means that when that treaty does come, the Americans cannot say, we hold X, Y, and Z, will you give us something? Because that's really the only um, the only leverage the Americans had. Because mm-hmm. on on the open on the ocean, their trade has been decimated. Their their fleet is virtually non-existent. Um, all they can do is try to seize Canada. And then for many Americans, that was really important. Um, the president wasn't among them, but many members of Congress viewed you know annexation of Canada as important in and of itself because mm-hmm. it was a an unfinished. Um, you know, task from the American Revolution. So, Queenston Heights, I think, is really significant, Um, maybe more so because of its mythological impact, but Lundy's Lane, again, it's another instance of Mm. um, the Americans being denied that bargaining chip. So, I'd like to thank you
3: for bringing that up there, Nick, because that was one of the things I wanted to try and sort of hit on the head, and I probably missed it a a bit because they could have kept Erie, but because of that battle... Brown thought that he'd lost too many men and the British would certainly destroy him. And over the course of the rest of the summer, he decided he couldn't hold Erie, which he could have used as a bargaining chip theoretically if he owned, if he held it. Um, But he eventually decided it had to go.
2: Once again, the milk of human kindness flows through this podcast, and my guests are nice to one another. Can we pit Canadian
5: against Canadian, though? Tom, <laughs> do you agree? Uh, yeah. Lundy's Lane was a significant battle, but I wouldn't say a turning point or a defining one. Like it was one. Part of a campaign. And uh, I think the thing that stands out around that whole 1814 Niagara campaign by the US is a missed opportunity, you know, because after Chippewa, they continued to push north up the Niagara River. Uh, They were at Queenston Heights, a little beyond and, and on the outskirts of Fort George, but They once again a lack of coordination. Their expectation was to see the American fleet on Lake Ontario off Fort George, and you know in this arms race on Lake Ontario, the the British had the upper hand. The American fleet ran for Sackets Harbor and were sheltering in there, and and then Brown and his army, they're like, well this isn't part of the plan let's i guess we'll start withdrawing back you know so they Mm -hmm. withdrew back through you know queenston and then niagara falls where you know Mm -hmm. actually Lundy's lane is still the name of a street in modern day niagara falls and then they were in camp somewhere around chippewa when when they heard of you know some british back in the area of the falls and so Winfield Scott was supposed to go scout it out and have a look, yeah. and, and he was never one to back down from a fight.
3: I believe his uh, I believe his thoughts were basically, oh, I'm going to go out here and see what's there, but I'm going to fight whatever's there.
5: <laughs> yeah, so, it, you know, it, it's probably more a stalemate, uh, I, I think, towards the end of the battle, the Americans had won but at that point both brown and scott oh, yeah. were, were wounded you know command had devolved down several levels uh even scott you know, was American, wounded the Amer- americans started pulling back without taking the british guns which nope. in, in theory they captured yep but then at a, a daybreak the british come back to the field the guns were still there and so they they said all right, right we'll, we'll pull these back and then when the americans mm-hmm. came to retrieve the guns they said well we're not doing this again <laughs> yeah and then they all retreated back to Fort Erie which when you talk about the bloodiest war like, you know i got friends that work for the Niagara Parks commission and manage Fort Erie that's one of their properties and they claim Fort Erie is so you you have the night assault in early yeah. august the siege dragged on into the fall the the american sortie mm. in, in September, which was, you know, huge casualties on both sides. And then I think you're well into November by time the Americans blew up the fort and withdrew back into the, the Buffalo yes, side of yes, the river. Yes, so, indeed.
3: The, yeah. yeah, the, the reason I raised the idea that Landy's lane, I th- I thought is it isn't the catalyst for why they abandoned Erie, but it's the reason they went back there and why the siege could occur. Um, I think probably Lundy's Lane is considered the costliest battle on Canadian soil in the terms of a one-day battle rather than the siege, I would
5: Uh, think. It's kind of one-sided. If you look at the night assault on Fort Erie, the the British got badly hammered there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's there's was no doubt lundy's lane was vicious you, you know mm-hmm. and you had both sides it, it was sides. a
3: strange kind of stubbornness right there, there was not a lot of good generalship here we basically it, it, it was stood at it, it, and shot at each other it was an alley fight right yeah, it was. It absolutely. Out in the
5: gutters right you just yeah. both sides you know kept piecemealing regiments in, into the fray as they arrived on, on the scene you know and there's an account where they talk about how close the armies were together in the dark mm-hmm. that that the muzzle flashes were actually interlacing from the, yes. muscles, you, know, you know, and, and crossing each mm-hmm. other. So uh, a really good account. Uh, there's a, there's a transcription of a, a diary of Jean-Luc Couture, who was an yes, ensign yes, yes. in uh, the 104th regiment. Donald Graves uh, has annotated that, but it, he, he has really vivid accounts of, of mm-hmm. the confusing fight at, at, at Lundy's lane. And then, I know I see Garant constantly referencing Don Graves' works, but, you know, he's got a yes. great Can't
0: book. I others, to be honest. <laughs> What's that? I said uh, there isn't really any others besides besides him. I mean, he's a fantastic author, but he's pretty much the only author as well. Where, for...
3: where Right and Glory Lead is the, is the book you're looking for, Phil, at the Lundy's Lane Niagara campaign. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's others. Unfortunately, some of them have, have passed away. So Robert mm. Malcolmson had done some great works, Quinson uh, oh, yeah. Heights, Fort York, but he did a lot. I think it's called Lords of the Lake, mm. where he talks oh, about yeah. uh, all the oh, naval scary, okay. actions. You know.
3: But in terms of significance, uh, I, I pitch this as a one of the most significant battles of, of the War of 1812, though maybe not the one that people might go to first, especially because... It also has, has significance for the United States in this one. Uh, the, this battle is a very important one, really, for the myth of Scott and the United States Regular Army, as well.
5: I, I'd attribute that more to Chippewa, right? So that I, that, I feel that, like
3: this is yeah.
5: That, I feel that's like this is the fulfillment. That's, that's the first time an American army bested a British one it on was. an open field using European style tactics, right? And then and then myth uh Saratoga I guess but yeah saying, saying you know seeing the Americans because of a shortage of blue wool you know where they're wearing gray. Uh, yeah. You know, uniform coats, and seeing that the British assumed that they militia, were yeah. they were militia, right? And then, as they stood up to the British fire, Real supposedly said, "My God, those are regulars." but According to Scott, but, yeah. <laughs> but, a, a, but a fun fact in honor of the victory at Chippewa—that's why West Point cadets' it is. coats are gray. So. My
3: my main thing is that not to take away from Chippewa, because that obviously is the prize of the United States Army in the War of 1812. Lundy's Lane being much more sanguinary and indecisive, they don't talk about as much, but I feel it showed that Chippewa, Chippewa wasn't a fluke, basically, that the United States regulars took immense punishment and gave back everything
5: they got, you know, I mean,
0: there was a final action wasn't there at Cook's Mill? That After was the- that
5: that was late, late in the fall. And it was pretty small. Yes. So basically, it was the uh, the debate around Chippewa is why on earth did the British cross the river and come yeah. up from behind their defenses to meet the Americans on, on an open field? So then, in Cook's Mills, the uh, the Americans this time did try to outflank the positions in Chippewa. So they were upriver, you know, from Chippewa in, in that little hamlet. So.
2: I have a feeling we could go on all night. What's happening here
3: with me and Tom is the Lundy's Lane kind of thing here, where we're just giving is giving each other stuff to think about.
2: Before, was, yeah, go on, go for it.
0: I was just going to say, it, you, you mentioned. I was thinking, I was about to mention uh, Thomas Pearson, and um, because he fought at Lundy's Lane, and he fought in Spain at, at Albuera. I couldn't help, feel that there's maybe a bit of a sort of almost a little bit of a similarity in the set, not in the sense of the battle or the size or anything, but in the sense of both Albuera and Lundy's Lane were very bloody battles, lots of casualties on both sides. And essentially, everything was back to square, you know, there was still...
3: yeah, That's I believe awesome. I believe there is one account that said something about I think it might be an American one, I forget, um, that said that Lundy's Lane was um uh stood out to him because technically there was no great difference between the two sides in terms of advantage and they both kind of fought each other to a standstill. Or <laughs> that's not my or, opinion. Technically, that's what he said. It's
5: like or spoke the same language. You yes, had that's o- another an Officers yes. stumbling into, into the other side, assuming they were their troops and being captured. And <laughs> yeah, there was all it, these it,
3: ridiculous it a, conversations during the battle between both sides. Try to, <laughs> what side are you for? <laughs>
5: so just basically you guys all have to come over here and I'll happily give you battlefield tours you, you got to actually walk the ground and, and see for yourself and yeah. then a, a point made maybe at, at the outset of this while the armies were significantly smaller and and the action the battlefield smaller you know, the wasn't as populous but you know as I reflect on the men that fought in these actions I, I think they have to be every bit, as terrifying and the consequences are every bit as grave, right? And so I, I think yeah. the size of the battles doesn't diminish the, their, their impact or, or importance either. So...
0: Didn't that didn't
5: Drummond take well a said.
0: in the neck as well during the battle and still carry yeah. on fighting? I mean, regardless of his tactical skill or whatever, you have to be pretty tough to take a bullet in the neck and still carry on, you know? it's uh, I couldn't
2: do that. <laughs> I don't think there are many of us who could to be frank just before we wrap up very very quickly going around the room if you couldn't have any of the ones that have been pitched tonight what would you give an honorable mention to Tom
5: uh probably battle Stony Creek that's what I had picked for an
4: honorable mention so Nick um I would say the capture of USS President And I say that because 30, 40 years later, the British were still naming the flagship of the the North American squadron HMS president to show off the (laughs) fact that they had taken that ship. Geraint?
0: Um, I'd go for Bladensburg and Washington, D.C., because, let's be honest, burning the White House, you can't get better than that.
5: Bladensburg races. (laughs) Uh, I mean,
2: better than burning the White House? I'm not sure we can necessarily say well, I mean, the, the White House was a no, good thing. The from one, diplomatic the side.
3: Hey, they were the yeah. enemy at the time. It's more more the how, about, how about more attention getting? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll go with
3: that. Yeah. yeah. And last
0: even people that aren't that don't know about the war of eighteen twelve know that for that the British burnt the White House. So that's
4: just that's, because and, and the, and if you're in back. Canada, then we know that's Canadians were at the White House. Yeah. <laughs> wrong, because but... of the because of
3: the song with the arrogant worms. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: <laughs> All together no. <laughs> no.
3: No, we're not singing, not at this time of night.
2: And last but by no means least, Josh, your honorable mention.
3: Um when I think of the war of eighteen twelve, a couple of things do stand out. Um you do get you know, Queenston Heist and the death of Brock, you get the burning of the White House. I refuse to acknowledge New Orleans uh, as really even part of this war. Um, <laughs> uh, but I would actually choose the Battle of the Thames where Tecumseh is killed um, because that becomes part of United States founding mythology. The death of Tecumseh is massively celebrated and is one of the things that people remember about the War of 1812. In America and not, and Canada, sure, but... Um, okay, I folks can briefly later. just um,
4: echo that point because pr- before the War of 1812, um, indigenous nations are still... Sovereignty is usually recognized. Um, they're allies of different European powers. Following the War of 1812, that no longer is the case and it transforms everything about indigenous way of life on this continent. Um, Tecumseh's attempted confederacy was one of the last ditch efforts to perhaps change that course of history. So that death at the Battle of Thames is monumental. Folks,
2: we are going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Thank you all for your time this evening. Um, I'm going to make sure that your Twitter um, handles are in the show notes for this. So folks, if you want to continue the conversation with any of my guests, you will be able to do so. Just scroll down and you will find all of their details. Nick, Tom, Josh, Geraint, it's been great talking to you. Thanks very much for joining me. It
0: was fun.
2: Thank Thank you. you. See you guys. Thank you. A huge thanks as ever to my Patreon supporters who hopefully are enjoying reaping the benefits of this enhanced package system. Shout-outs, therefore, to the mentioned in dispatches folks, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Alexandre Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Coss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair campbell Grieve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Michael Guest, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gombau, Mark Duckers, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keyes Bishop, An Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, and James Flueck. The admirals, who are David Priest, David Maxwell, Rob Coughlin, and Graham Callister. The marshals, Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, and Duo Teixeira. The emperor, there's only one right now, and that's JC Kaiser. And the legion de scholars, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. Thank you, as always, for your incredibly generous support. And thank you for listening.